You're listening to the Lord's Prayer Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we learn how prayer brings peace and power into the daily parts of our lives. We'll explore this through the most famous prayer in Scripture, the words that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. As I mentioned last week, we are entering into this It's a new initiative for us. It's something unlike anything we've ever done before. What we're calling the Year of Prayer, which very simply is we want to be a church that grows and deepens, not just in our understanding of prayer, but also in praying. And so we're kicking this year off with a four-week series talking about prayer, looking at the Lord's Prayer. And I've been reading an awful lot of books and doing a lot of thinking about prayer. And and something that I guess kind of that's kind of obvious. But I'd never really thought about um, or given much thought to until recently is that prayer is one of the few common threads that runs throughout all of human history and across all civilizations. You can go to the Greeks and Romans of antiquity, the Incas and the Aztecs, to the remote tribes and the Amazon, to prayer meetings in downtown Manhattan. Prayer is common to us all. It's part of what it means to be human is to pray. When we, when we encounter a breathtaking landscape, like if you stand at the foot of the Tetons or on the beach looking at an ocean, there is an impulse in all of us that wants to express some, some measure of, of wow. Like who did this? There's something in us that wants to cry out and say, this, this is amazing. I want to give credit where it's due. Or when something unexpected happens in our life that's really, really good, there's this impulse in us to say, thank you to whoever made this happen. Or when something unexpected happens in our life that's not wanted, that's painful and that's hard, there's an impulse in us to cry out, why? Why is this happening? All of us are born with this impulse to pray. And, you know, I was in reading, I read about a time in communist Russia, which is a society that was built on atheism. People still felt this impulse to pray. And so in the state-run newspaper, Pravda, which was really propaganda, in a 1950 edition, I, I, I imagine that there was, you know, some kind of like Dear Abby. I don't know what the Russian name for Abby is, but uh, in it they give this advice. They speak to this impulse that all human beings have to pray. And they, they wrote this, if you meet with difficulties in your work or suddenly doubt your abilities, think of him, of Stalin, and you will find the confidence you need. If you feel tired in an hour when you should not, think of him, of Stalin, and your work will go well. If you're seeking a correct decision, think of him, of Stalin, and you will find that decision. It's that impulse to pray. Throughout history, people have prayed for rain, for their crops, for fertility. Before going to war, people on both sides would pray that their side would win. And even though our culture is growing increasingly secular, We're still a praying people. Research shows that over three-quarters of Americans pray on a regular basis. 50% of Americans at least pray every single day. And the most interesting statistic to me is that 20% of atheists pray at least once a week, if not once a month, which that's kind of interesting to think about. 
We pray before meals. We pray for our friends and family members who are sick. We pray for success in our work or our business. We pray for our kids and their health and their well-being. We pray for our teams to win. This impulse is hardwired into us. Prayer is one of the universal enduring elements of what it means to be human. It's very common, but prayer is also challenging. It's confusing and it's frustrating. It's one thing to pray reactively to the things of life, but learning to grow in prayer is actually hard for most of us. It's mysterious and at times it's confusing. You know, a student at Princeton once once asked Albert Einstein, what topic is left in this world for someone to do an original doctoral dissertation on? And Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. That's what we're trying to do in this series. Trying to find out about prayer. And we're trying to grow in it. And the way we're doing that is we're looking at the prayer Jesus gave us. Because if you can learn from the master, you should. And so last week we talked about the first line of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus orients us and reminds us of who it is that we're praying to when we pray. He's God, yes. But he's not just a cosmic force or a spiritual emanation. He's a person. He's God, our Father. And he loves us with a fatherly love. He cares for us. He calls us his children. And so when we go to him in prayer, we're going to Father. Well, today, we're going to pick up where we left off, and we're going to look at the first three requests or petitions of the Lord's Prayer, and you could call them the Your Request, because each one has the word Your in there. It's hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, and your will be done. And then then it finishes with this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. And I don't know if there is, in the history of the world, I don't know if there are, are any sets of words that have ever been repeated more than these. And yet, I think we struggle to actually know what we're asking for here. You know, my wife and I, for the last few months, we've turned our prayer before dinner with our kids. We pray the Lord's Prayer every time. And and every time I'll ask them questions after we pray. So, hey, what do you guys think this means? You know, hallowed be your name. I don't know. Is that Halloween? You know, like what what hallowed? And I think that I love kids because they're honest, but I think there's a lot of us in this room that, that we've prayed these prayers multiple times. We've heard them prayed. But what is it that we're actually asking for? On the surface, these requests, they seem pretty detached from our everyday lives. God's kingdom being hallowed is, or his name being hallowed is kingdom coming. It sounds super religious and kind of otherworldly, but I assure you it's not. And I assure you that this is the greatest prayer we could ever pray. And that if we're willing to do a little work, because it's going to take a little work to understand the meaning behind these words, but if we're willing to do a little work understanding this, it, it, it won't just reshape how you pray, it'll reshape how you live. Because it's the greatest prayer we've ever been given. So before we jump in, will you pray with me and ask God that, that he might speak to us in a unique way this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken We thank you for this prayer that we're not left to to try to figure out on our own what to do with this impulse we all have to cry out to you. We thank you that 
Jesus has given us this as, as a model to both pray and to help shape all of our prayers. And so I pray as we come to these familiar yet strange requests that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts so that we might be awakened or reawakened to the great promises that you've made, the great hope that we have, and that those promises and that hope might empower us in our praying and in our living. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The way I want to tackle these requests, I want to look at them under three headings. The first is the unity. Second, I want to talk about the priority of these requests. And then third, we're going to talk about the power, how they actually change our lives. But I want to start with the unity of these requests. And when I say unity, what I mean is that on the surface, it seems like Jesus is giving us three distinct things to pray. So we've got, hallowed be your name, and then we've got your kingdom come, and then we've got your will be done, that he's telling us to pray three different things. But in actuality, these petitions, these requests, they're all deeply interconnected. And I'd argue that they're all really slight variations, nuance, but variations of the same request. We're not asking for three things. We're really asking for one big thing. And that one big thing is that, that last line in the first half, on earth as it is in heaven. And that little phrase, it's connected to all three of those requests. And so you could actually pray, hallowed be your name on earth as it already is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the unity is that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying. And when Jesus speaks of heaven and earth, he's talking about, it's kind of hard to explain something like this, but he's talking about two dimensions of reality, two planes of existence. There's the earth, which is our space, where we live, and it's filled with both breathtaking beauty and you know, heart-wrenching brokenness. And then there's heaven, and that's God's space, where God lives. And in God's space, it's all Beth breathtaking beauty, and there is no brokenness whatsoever. And with each of these requests, what Jesus is teaching us to pray is, God, your space is beautiful and it's perfect, and we want you to make your space come and overtake our space on earth as it is in heaven. And so the first request, hallowed be your name. The word hallow is not a word we use very often, but it's an old word that basically means to honor, to treat as holy. You could actually translate it as holify. And so the first request is we're saying, God, holify your name. Lift it up. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, this can be a little confusing because in the Scripture, we're told again and again that God's name is holy. Like God's already holy. And so what are we actually asking for? When we say, God, holify your name, lift it up. Well, again, in the Bible, God's name, just like in our day, name is often shorthand for reputation. We talk about people's reputation in terms of their name. They have a good name, a bad name. They've ruined my name. Your name is mud. And what Jesus is drawing our attention to with this request is that here on earth, God's name is not honored. And God is not seen or loved or worshipped for who he truly is. 
that our greatest problem on this earth, because this is the very first request, is that we do not see or know God as he truly is. Some people, they view God as a violent judge. Some people view him as an absentee landlord or the clockmaker who made things and then took his hands off the machine. Some people view him as a cosmic Santa Claus who gives good gifts to all of the good people and cold to the bad. And then there are other people who deny his existence altogether. And Jesus is saying, here on this earth, our greatest problem is that we don't know God for who he truly is, that his reputation, it's been marred. This is our world's greatest problem, and it's our world's oldest problem. This traces all the way back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3. What was Satan's first tactic to lead people away from God? It wasn't sex, drugs, or rock and roll. It wasn't some scandalous sin. Satan's strategy was he came to Eve and he said, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Now, of course, that's not what God said. God said, it's all yours. It's all yours, except for this one. Just don't eat that one. It's for your good you don't eat that one. But what Satan does is, he, he tried to twist Eve's understanding of God instead of being a God of goodness and abundance and provision to being a God of restrictions, of, of law, of holding things back. Because Satan knew that if he could get Eve to doubt and mistrust, God, rebellion would soon follow and hell would break loose on the earth. And that's what we've seen. And ever since that day, we have not known or seen or worship God for who he truly is. I mean, we talked about this last week. We all have these images of God that are not true. And those images shape our lives in profound ways, but they're negative ways. And so what Jesus is saying, first and foremost, what this world needs more than anything is to know the God who created it and who created us as he truly is. We need his reputation to be restored on earth. And so that leads to the second request. Because how will God restore his reputation on earth? Well, by his kingdom coming and his will being done. And getting into the subject of the kingdom of God, I could talk about it for a long time, but you'd probably be more confused at the end than the beginning because it's a big, complex topic. So I want to keep it simple. What's a kingdom? What's a kingdom? Kingdom is a territory that's ruled by a king. And so this is a little confusing for us too, because we're saying, God, bring your reign on earth as it is in heaven. But we have to acknowledge that in one sense, God sovereignly rules over the earth right now. Like God is never worried or confused or unsure about what's happening in this world. We, you know, we believe in the sovereignty of God. And so in one sense, he rules and reigns right now. But in another sense, much of what happens on this earth is counter to his will. We turn on our TVs and our stomachs turn at what we see. It's like an unending stream of mass shootings and then school shootings and then sexual abuse and sex trafficking and Racial divisions and racial hatred, poverty, international conflict, loud people voicing horrible opinions of other people, divisions, 
strife and chaos. And then you add to that things like Alzheimer's or muscular dystrophy or cancer or blindness, death itself. When God created the world and he declared it very good, none of those things were a part of it. They are all a result of Satan and sin. And right now, in heaven, in God's space, none of those things exist. They're only happening here on earth. And so what we're praying is we're saying, God, the way things are there, we need them to be like that here. And we're not asking this, you know, just could you do this? We're, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're actually doing is we're saying, God, you've made a bunch of promises and we want you to come through on them. Because throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God has made a whole bunch of promises about how this whole thing we call history comes to an end. He's promised that there will come a day when heaven will overtake this earth. And on that day, his kingdom will reign uncontested. On that day, every right will be Every wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be rectified. Every tension resolved. Every hope satisfied. Every longing fulfilled. On that day, there will be no more sin. Which means there will be no more feelings of guilt. There will be no more shame. There will be no more fear or anxiety. There will be no more depression because there will be no more crying or mourning. For death will be no more. On that day, every tear will be wiped away. On that day, we're told the lion will lay down with the lamb. The trees will clap their hands. We will run and not grow weary. On that day, swords will be beaten into plowshares. And our atomic bombs will be repurposed into park benches. On that day, we will see God face to face. And we will know him and be united to him. On that day, his name will be hallowed by every tongue. His kingdom will reign uncontested, and his will will be perfectly done. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, what we are praying to God is do it now. In our time, in our day, do it now. On earth as it already is in heaven. See, this is no small prayer, and this is no prayer that doesn't speak to our day-to-day existence. This speaks to the core of who we are and our deepest longings and our aches. Does anyone else look at this world and long to see the beauty without the brokenness? Long to see the glory without all of the garbage? When Jesus came, his first big announcement the kingdom's at hand. And everyone came to see because they knew these promises. And they're like, is this it? We've been waiting for centuries. And what did Jesus do? What were the miracles he did? Healing. Broken bodies, broken minds. Setting people free who were enslaved to demonic oppression. He healed broken relationships, people who'd been cast out of society. He welcomed them back in. People groups that were separated, he tore down walls between them. And the greatest wall that existed between us and God, Jesus pulled that wall down too when he went up on the cross. 
And so in Christ, the kingdom of God broke into this world in a decisive and irrevocable way, but it hasn't come in its fullness. Sometimes we talk about this as already not yet. Maybe a better way of understanding it is it's partially here, but it's not here in its fullness. It's not completely here. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, we're saying we're ready. Like we're ready. Bring it. This is the biggest prayer we could ever pray. There's no greater prayer than this one. I love how Frederick Buechner speaks about it. He says, we do, not, we do well not to pray this prayer lightly. It takes guts to pray it at all. We can pray it in the unthinking and perfunctory way we usually do, only by disregarding what we are saying. Thy will be done is what we are saying. That is the climax of the first half of the prayer. We are asking God to be God. We are asking God to make manifest the holiness that is now mostly hidden, to set free in all its terrible splendor and devastating power that is now mostly under restraint. Thy kingdom come on earth is what we are saying. And if that were to suddenly happen, what then? What would stand and what would fall? Who would be welcomed in and who would be thrown the hell out? To speak those words is to invite the tiger out of the cage, to unleash a power that makes atomic power look like a warm breeze. You know, it's interesting, at the center of the Sermon on the Mount is the Lord's Prayer. And at the center of the Lord's Prayer are the words, on earth as it is in heaven. <laughs> and really at the center of our faith is Jesus Christ who was in heaven, who came to earth to redeem us and all of creation. And so when we pray these prayers, the unity, that's what we're praying, God on earth in our time, in our day, as it already is in heaven. That's the unity. Second point is the priority. What do I mean by priority? Well, it's fascinating to me that this is the first thing Jesus teaches us to pray. He leads off with it. You think he would build up to it over time. But he comes right out of the gate and teaches us to pray in a way I don't know about you, this is not how I typically start my prayers. I don't wake up in the morning, first words out of my mouth, God, end world hunger. Heal, you know, heal everyone who has cancer. Bring an end to all wars. Usually I wake up and I pray like, this is kind of stressing me out. I'm not looking forward to this. This is really hard. I really want this. Could you do that for me? And I want to be clear, it's not wrong to bring our request to God. Jesus will teach us to do that. We'll look at it next week, daily bread forgiveness. But that's not where Jesus starts. He doesn't start with us asking God to give us things. Instead, he starts with us asking God to come through on all of his promises. The order here, I think it's really important, and I think it has the power to shift how we understand and how we think of prayer. Often, you know, I would imagine if your prayers were recorded and played back for you to listen to, even your private prayers, often I think that we think that the goal of prayer is to give God information and then to convince him to do what's right. 
Oftentimes in prayer, what we're doing is we're saying, God, I've surveyed the landscape. This, this is kind of a problem. These people are jerks if you could deal with them. If we could get an influx of resources here to solve this. Like we're being an, an informant and an advisor and a consultant to him. And there's some mystery here. Like we're, we do need to put our requests before him. He wants us, he wants us to lay our requests before him. But Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, right before he gives us this prayer, he, he says, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so that means that prayer can't, the essence of prayer can't be giving God information because he already knows and he knows better than we do. And furthermore, prayer, it can't be a means by which we try to convince God to do what's right because God is perfect in his righteousness. And so the question becomes, well, then why would I ever pray? (laughs) I thought that's what prayer was, so why would I ever pray? And I'll be honest, that's been a struggle of mine for years with prayer, just letting you in. When I was young, I was sure of how the world should go and my life should go, and then life got harder and harder, kind of kicked me in the stomach a few times. And I came to this place where I realized I don't know nearly what I think I should know, or I think I do know. And I really got to this place with prayer, like, who am I to tell him how to run the world? I struggled just to balance our checkbook. But that's such a small view of prayer. And I think a lot of us, we, we've kind of swallowed that hook, line, and sinker, and we miss that, that prayer is so much greater and so much richer and so much deeper than that. Prayer is the means by which we talk with our Father, Every relationship grows through communication. And prayer is a means by which we talk with him, we delight in him, and we also learn from him. We're also changed by him. And, you know, we've got a a one-and-a-half-year-old who's learning to speak, and how do you teach a child to speak? You give them words, and then they speak them back to you. You say it over and over and over again. And Hank... He can say the words. He usually, if I say, da-da, da-da, he'll just shake his head at me. But later in the day, sometimes, he'll walk up and he'll say, da-da. I'm like, he's listening. He's learning. Where did he learn those words? Well, I gave them to him. And then he's speaking them back to me. Well, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is like a parent. He's giving us words to speak back to the Father, and in doing this, he's shaping us and he's changing us. This is how we change. If you're tracking with what I'm saying, you'll understand what I mean when I say that prayer is not us trying to bend God's will to our will. Prayer is really much more about us trying to bend our will to his will. In prayer, especially as we pray this prayer, we're saying, God, I want to be more like you, and I want your priorities to be my priorities. See, when Jesus teaches us to pray these things first, he's teaching us something about God's heart for this world, God's priorities, and it's not that God doesn't care about our daily needs, but God's great agenda is to heal this world, to magnify his glory, to hallow his name, and to deliver his saints. When we pray, We're putting on lenses and saying, I want to see the world as you see the world, God. 
So implicit in praying this prayer first, it's a reminder that this world is not the way it should be. And I don't know if most of us need that reminder, honestly. I think we all feel that. That's why we're so passionate about politics. Because we don't like the way the world is and we want to see it get better. But also implicit in this prayer is the recognition that while there are some things that we can do, this world will not be put back right until Jesus returns. Nothing else can do what he will do. It doesn't matter. I mean, we have this, this mistaken notion that if we could just get better policies and better politicians, everything would be made right and our world's problems would go away. And hear me, I'm not saying that we don't need better policies or politicians. I pray to God we get better policies and better politicians, better leaders. What I am saying, it doesn't matter who we get. They're not going to fix the world. The problem's too deep. Evil in this world is deep, structured, systemic. It's powerful. And that's why Paul reminds us your battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities that you can't see. People are not the enemy. And we're not going to get ourselves out of the mess that we've got ourselves into. Only God's going to do that. And so when we pray this prayer, what we're doing is we're realigning our priorities and our thoughts with God's priorities and his thoughts. You know, I heard... I think I've used this here before. There's an old story about a lumberjack who's been tasked with this job of clearing a forest of diseased trees. We'll call them ash trees. They've got the emerald ash borer, and they're all dying, and they're all going to topple over. And the owner of the forest, what he wants to do is he wants to get rid of those, and then he wants to plant some new trees. And so the lumberjack, he walks into this diseased forest, comes to the first tree that he sees, and he's getting ready to chop it down, and he sees a bird up in the tree making a nest. And of course, the, bird, the bird's unaware that this tree's diseased, and so it's just doing what birds do. It's making its nest. And the lumberjack, because he's a good man, he takes his axe and he turns it sideways, and he takes the flat of the axe, and as hard as he can, he whacks it against the trunk of that ash tree. Now, the bird's shaken, literally and metaphorically. They probably have some internal bleeding after that. And so the bird's like, what's going on, and flies off to the next tree, and it's like, I'm going to, a little further into the forest, starts building its nest. Well, the lumberjack, because he's a good lumberjack, he follows the bird. He watches her start to make her next nest in the next tree, and he takes his axe, and he just whacks, and this happens two or three more times. And then finally, the bird flies and builds its nest on the rock and the side of a cliff. Now, typically, I would tell you that story to say that <laughs> everything in this world Every tree that we try to build our life upon, be it our family, our jobs, our career, reputation, our wealth, they're all like disease trees, and every one of those trees is coming down eventually. Either in life, we'll lose our job, lose our reputation, our kids will grow up and not like us, or whatever, or when we die. And usually, it's only suffering that wakes us up to this reality. I mean, we all know this, right? I think we spend a whole lot of time trying to not think about this. But we know it on one level. And then suffering comes. Someone you love dies or you get a horrible diagnosis or you experience an irrevocable loss in life. And it's like just that axe, the flat of the axe against the tree of your life. And it shakes you and wakes you up 
to ultimate reality. That's where suffering is a real gift. Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying we don't have to wait for suffering to wake ourselves up to ultimate reality. We don't have to wait for the whack of that ax against the tree to wake up to what's wrong with our world and how what's wrong is going to be made right. See, in teaching us to pray on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus is realigning our hearts and recentering our thinking first. That's the priority. Lastly, the power. Just one more, I promise. Uh, Something I, I'd never really given much thought to until the last few months of immersing myself in the, this prayer is that these first three requests in each of them, we're not asking God to do anything in us. In each of these requests, we're asking God to do only things that he can do. And I think oftentimes I've heard this taught, I've heard it preached, I've probably preached it this way in the past, but his grace is sufficient. Oftentimes we read these requests as thinly veiled commands. And what I mean is we'll read them and say, well, the meaning of this prayer is that I need to hallow God's name. I need to bring his kingdom, whatever that means. And then I need to do his will. And while there are certainly two of those are very true and the other one's kind of true, those are implications. That's not what Jesus tells us to pray here. He doesn't say pray that you might honor my father's name. He doesn't say pray that the Father might give you strength to bring his kingdom or the resolve to do his will. We're not asking God to do anything in us. We're asking God with these requests to do only things that he can do. We're crying out, you do it. You hallow your name. You bring your kingdom. You do your will here on earth as it is in heaven. And because we're Americans, most of us, we like to get stuff done, it's really confusing for us. Like, okay, well, what's the application? What am I supposed to do in response to this? And what I want you to see, and it's critical to see to understanding this prayer, is that these requests, they do speak to our behavior, and I'll get to that in a minute, but they're not first about our behavior. These requests are more about our hopes and our longings those things that we ache for in life, then they're concerned with how, what we're doing or not doing or how we're behaving. See, Jesus here, he's, he's teaching us desire. He's teaching us what to desire. And desire is how we change. Willpower doesn't change much. The way we change is that our desires change. We want different things because when you want something, I mean really want it, you find a way to make it happen. What Jesus is trying to stir our imaginations and cultivate our desires by teaching us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. And I'll tell you, when you pray these words in a meaningful way, they're going to change you too because every time you pray them meaningfully, you're forced to ask, what is it I really want? What do I really long for? What's really shaping my life? 
You know, it's hard to meaningfully pray, God, make yourself known to the ends of the earth. Reveal your name and your glory in all of its splendor. Put an end to all sickness, disease, and death. May every name or every tongue on this earth confess your name. And while you're at it, if you could give me this car that I'm really, really, really interested in, that'd be great. Right? It doesn't, <laughs> it, it doesn't make sense. You guys tracking with me? It gets to our desires. And when our, our desires change, then our lives change. And I think one of the reasons we get stuck as Christians, I'll just tell you one of the reasons I get stuck, one of the reasons, you know, at times when my faith grows cold or I feel like I've stalled in my growth, it's when my desires are misaligned with his desires, when my priorities are misaligned with his priorities. And for me, often God feels far because my passions are over here and his passions are over here. I mean, God cares about us. He knows the number of hairs on our head. But God has a greater vision for our life than our personal success or whatever you want for your company or your family or your education. God is marching history to an inevitable end of glory and beauty beyond imagination. And this prayer, he invites us. He says, I want you to take part. You're going to pray with me and take part in this. But when we live our lives over here, obsessed with our own needs, never thinking about what's going on with him and his needs and his desires, of course we're going to feel far. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us. Doesn't mean he doesn't want the best for us. But he's not going to bless desires that have in no way contribute to his great end for the world. And that's where if you pray this prayer, I mean meaningfully pray this prayer, it'll change your passions and then it'll change your life. Small ways, big ways. Big ways, if you've charted a course in life that gives little thought to where God's taking human history, you pray this prayer every day and you mean it, all of a sudden your vision gets expanded. The horizons of possibility open up. You start to see the world differently. You, you stop becoming what, you know, especially in the church, I, I think this one of the big ways this changes us is it frees us from our self-obsessiveness. I know we're all wired differently and we have different temperaments and some of you need to practice a little more self-examination. But there are a lot of you here who that's where you live, just constantly evaluating and analyzing yourself, and you're miserable, and when you live that way, you often make other people miserable too. At least that's what my wife's told me. <laughs> because we think that when we're in that place, we think, well, what God's working to in the end is like me getting all of my behavior rights, and they matter, they absolutely matter. But he's got a much bigger vision that he's inviting us to take part in. I actually think one of Satan's strategies, if he can get us to just focus on our behavior so much that we neglect what God is doing in the world, then we render ourselves pretty much incapacitated to joining him in it. So if you pray this prayer, it's a big prayer. It'll change your life. It'll force you to ask some really hard questions. It'll also, it'll change your days, like the little moments. I think praying this prayer has the power to free us 
from the tyranny of the urgent. It has a way of freeing us from this feeling that we're always behind, we're always late, and we're always coming up short. Maybe that's just me, but it sure seems like that's the way most people feel. You know, over the month of July, I got into the habit of leaving my phone in the room, the other room, when I went to bed. Um, and that was because three days into my break, my time off, I found that by 11 o'clock in the morning, I was just angry. Like, just mad. Anyone ever wake up mad? Just mad. Like, just mad. Why am I so angry? Start reflecting. Well, how'd you start your day? Well, you looked at the news, which is never good. Then you got on social media and saw people sniping each other and piling on people whose lives are already going through a lot and Christians attacking each other. And then you checked your email and you're reminded of all of the things that are waiting for you. Well, of course, by 11 o'clock, it's pretty hard. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to set it aside, leave it in the other room. It's amazing. I made a resolution. I'm, I'm not getting out of bed until I pray the Lord's Prayer. And sometimes it would take 20 seconds, and sometimes it would take 20 minutes, and sometimes I'd get, you know, halfway through and then take a nap and <laughs> finish it when I woke back up. But here's one of the things I'm convinced of after this past month. What we give our minds to first in the morning shapes the rest of our day. And we live in a world that is dominated by technology, and that technology is designed to capture and retain your attention. Billions of dollars are spent to make sure that when you pick up your phone, you don't put it back down. You know, I heard someone say recently, you paid the 800 bucks for your iPhone, but it doesn't work for you. It works for Apple. And so if we decide, you know what, we're not going to just jump into it first thing in the morning. We're going to set it aside. We're going to recenter ourselves and God's promises and his plans. I really do think it will change your days and how you live. And so I want to invite you, if, if you are a Christian this week, I want to invite you five minutes a day. Pray what you got. If all you can pray is help, that's fine. But, and if you've got a great prayer routine, just stick with what you're, you've got. But if you're not in either of those camps, I want to encourage you, five minutes a day for the next seven days. We pray this prayer. Pray these three requests. Give some time and reflection. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't know what your hope is beyond this life, but I know there's a hope greater than this life. And you probably have a lot of things that you've got wrapped up in what is Christianity all about. Well, the trajectory is that in the end, God will make this world new. And on that day, every knee will bow. Some will bow in adoration. Some will bow in, under compulsion, but everyone will bow. And I want to invite you to worship and to bow before him today. As we move to the Lord's table, we're reminded of the night before Jesus' crucifixion where he was with his disciples. He took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup. said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. So do this in remembrance of me. Take part in this to remember what I have accomplished for you.
But then Jesus says something really curious. He makes a promise to his disciples. He says, I will not drink of this cup again until the kingdom comes in its fullness. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we're both remembering what Jesus has done, that we're loved, we're forgiven, but we're also looking forward to what he's promised to do, to make the world new, and we're told that when he does, we will sit down and we will feast with him. So as we come to this table, let's hold those images in our mind. If you have sin to confess, now is the time to do it, knowing that God is faithful and just to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If your hope has grown cold, now is the time to plead with God, waken me to ultimate reality. May my heart be aligned with yours. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.